incredibly useful. Um, also the Leotard Reader and Guide. Um, and he is currently, I believe, working on a project on Deleuze and philosophies of time. Um, today he will be speaking on uh, contemplating pebbles. So we'll see what that means. And uh, let's thank James for, for speaking. Before I start, I'd like to thank uh, Michael and uh, Brian for their work organizing this. Um, people talk about the faculty as if we do anything. Um, actually, it's uh, Michael and Brian who, who did everything, uh, and all we do is sit back and let them uh, do our work. So I'm very grateful, and uh, it's been uh, terrific to see you put together such a great event. So thanks. Uh, I'm going to need three, three props today. Um, there's a squeaky water pump there. Um, there's a, a clock striking four just behind me. There's one right behind you as well, which uh, I'll need. And, of course, there's the Pebble Beach down there. If you go down to the Pebble Beach, watch the handrail, given the weather we've been having recently. So w what am I working on today? Uh, the first thing to say is we're not doing the contemplating. It's the pebbles doing the contemplating in my title, Contemplating Pebbles. And so I'm trying to uh, respond to a problem raised in Deleuze's philosophy of time. But there's a much wider context. What is that wider context? It's that I'm trying to construct a process philosophy of time based on Deleuze's work, but no doubt stretching it. The whole point of a process philosophy of time is that all time is, is process and process in multiple ways. Today, I will just be looking at one aspect of this process philosophy of time built around Gilles Deleuze's first synthesis of time that he develops in over very few pages in Difference and Repetition. Now, in order to tackle the idea of a process philosophy of time, I'm going to, to need to look at a whole series of, of severe problems that come out of Deleuze's treatment of time and in difference and repetition. In no specific order, uh, here they are. And e each one really also responds to a series of critical readings that have been coming out uh, about Deleuze over the last, uh, let's say, ten years. Uh, first, and this might be surprising... Uh, but there's the danger that Deleuze's process philosophy of time might end up being subject-centred and human-centred. And this comes out very strongly in his treatment of the first synthesis of time, and in particular in the context that he takes with respect to David Hume. This is the room in which I lecture uh, Hume to the second years, so it's uh, perfect uh, to be doing that here. So that, that's, that's one risk... And in a very general form, we could find the worries and the criticism uh, raised about this subject-centeredness in the work of uh, Miyasu. Uh, second, uh, there is the danger and threat of a return to certain forms of transcendence in Deleuze's philosophy. Does his treatment of the philosophy of time reintroduce certain concepts that can be associated with a function of transcendence in his work. And obviously the, the two key critics with respect to this are Alain Badiou for the very formal treatment of this problem, of 
transcendence reappearing through the notion of the one in Deleuze's philosophy, and Peter Hallward for uh, an equally important criticism that picks up on the danger of a certain mysticism within Deleuze's work, and it's a mysticism that will come through Deleuze's inheritance from Bergson that's very important in terms of this first synthesis of time. So that, that is an, another problematic area, the danger of a return to transcendence. Third, there is, uh, at least in my work, a reaction against the mathematization of Deleuze. Now we find this mathematization obviously in the work of Delanda, his important interpretation of the later parts of uh, Deleuze, in particular the work with Gattari, and also uh, in many different parts, until the, the, the big book comes out, the work of Dan Smith, and the way in which Dan Smith reads Deleuze very strongly through Leibniz. And I'm thinking in particular in Smith's understanding of the importance of a principle of reason taken from Leibniz, but given a mathematical foundation in Deleuze. So I'm also reacting against that. Now that's, that's perhaps the area that I'm most worried about in my own reading of uh, Deleuze. Am I missing something by moving away from this uh, mathematical ground for some of Deleuze's most important ideas? Fourthly, I also want to react, or at least slightly reposition Deleuze's work in terms of uh, a major interpretation that's come out of his work in terms of Deleuze as transcendental philosopher. And that comes out in particular with Levi Bryant's book um, that came out uh, two uh, years ago uh, on uh, givenness, difference in givenness in the philosophy of uh, Deleuze. Now, Bryant's book uh, gives a very convincing reader reading of Deleuze as transcendental philosopher, I want to claim that there is a necessary speculative aspect to Deleuze's philosophy that we have to read in addition to any transcendental moment. And I think that speculative aspect is very important within the construction of this process philosophy of time. It's a speculative process philosophy time. And we can start to understand this or understand why I would arrive at this and what's driving my concern um, to react against a transcendental reading of Deleuze is that I read Deleuze very, very closely uh, to Whitehead. And indeed, the title Contemplating Pebbles comes out of another article that I've been writing um, where we see Deleuze and Whitehead both reflecting on a, a comment that in fact dates back to Napoleon when he arrived in, uh, into Egypt, and he said, uh, soldiers, from the height of these pyramids, two millennia are contemplating you. The stones are contemplating you. Two millennia of history are contemplating you. Now, Deleuze picked up on this notion of contemplation in lots of different places, but I'm particularly interested in the way he picks up on it in terms of his philosophy of time and the risks involved there. Because we will see that he looks at this concept of contemplation in association with a Humean treatment of the notion of soul. And we can straight away see that there are enormous risks involved of associating contemplation with soul in terms of that first problem that I raised with respect to the subject and a certain human-centeredness and the Hallward criticism in relation to a Deleuzean mysticism. Is there a mystical core still to Deleuze's uh, work?
Now, the, the fifth area, I wanted to call what I was doing a triangulation, but I now know that I have five points, so it's a pentagrammation uh, that I've got here. The fifth uh, important interpretation of Deleuze that's come out um, can be associated with the concept of genesis in uh, Deleuze's work. Now, it's quite important uh, within Bryant's interpretation, but it's even more important with the interpretation that came out in a book called Truth and Genesis by Miguel de Beistig, where uh, one of the, the least written on but very important connections to Deleuze uh, is taken to its fullest uh, extent, at least to date, and that's the relation to Heidegger in Deleuze's work. So Truth and Genesis by Miguel de Beistig. And I, I want to make sure... That kind of seems like a sort of imposition now. I want to make sure that Genesis is read as process in Deleuze's work. Rather than as something that has to be read in line with any given science of our time. So behind this is a concern that's also raised by Bryant in the concluding chapter of his book, and that's to what extent do we have to think of Deleuze as a dogmatic philosopher, and what's at stake to think of Deleuze as a dogmatic philosopher. I don't think he is a dogmatic philosopher, he's a speculative philosopher, and that's not the same thing, because it means that any grounds for making a claim of dogmatism is putting brackets or question marks at either end with respect to the speculative move, which is always open and open to question. I think it's crucial to understanding uh, Deleuze's writing and now, I'll move straight into uh, the text uh, now. Uh, and I start at a point where Deleuze is discussing Hume and Bergson. And I start with a key statement about Deleuze's first synthesis of time. And it's this. Time and synthesis, as well as the living present, cannot be subjective in the sense of properties of the understanding or memory of a thinking subject. So that's, that's a key claim that Deleuze goes on to demonstrate in his reading of the first synthesis of time. How does he show this? Deleuze's demonstration of this focuses on Hume's work on the imagination and draws out a number of key remarks and terms. Now, another aside, you'll see that I haven't mentioned Hume at the start in terms of the different ways in which Deleuze has been read over the last, let's say, ten years. But I think this relation to Hume is very important. One book's come out on Deleuze and Hume, that's Geoffrey Bell's book. But that book is not a book about Deleuze's metaphysics. And I think that a, a book on Deleuze and Hume's metaphysics would be a fascinating thing uh, to come across. If any of you know one, because so many books are coming out on Deleuze at the moment, I might have missed it, but um, I haven't found one yet. So, Deleuze's demonstration of this focuses on Hume's work on the imagination and draws out a number of key remarks and terms. These are significant because they expand on an earlier puzzle. Deleuze's text unfolds through a series of puzzles that are responded to and then turned into paradoxes that then produce concepts. It also turns along a much more familiar form of dialectic. Hume is his own be Deleuze is his own best critic and you can find him constantly raising objections and responding to them throughout his text. 
Deleuze's arguments depend on the claim that grounding repetition on the subject involves presuppositions about the form of repetition. But unlike the work on the paradox in the objective approach, we have not seen how exactly, how exactly does this uh, lead to a set of presuppositions. That's what Deleuze goes on to show in Difference and Repetition. According to his reading of Hume, memory, as represented conceptually, contains particular memories or represented events in their own distinct times and spaces. And it's that distinctness that's important in relation to his critique of memory. For example, my crushed hand on the pump two days ago, on that squeaky pump there. My crushed hand on the pump two days ago, as distinct from my healing hand on the pump yesterday. This memorised past can be distinguished from the past in retention in the living present, because in the latter, a series of events is synthesised such that they are not separable. As we saw earlier in my reading, the past is concentrated in the living present and does not have a distinct existence. This concentration through synthesis is crucial. There is never a distinct existence as soon as there is a process of synthesis in Deleuze. What is more, this concentration in retention must draw past events together because their reality is only through their retention as a series, which is itself a prior condition for any later separation of the series in memory. So every synthesis is the synthesis of series, but series can't be separated into distinct elements. And we're going to see why in a second. The same is true for anticipation, anticipation towards the future in a living present, where the movement towards a concentrated series of fused general abstract events is separated by the understanding into a set of weighted distinct possibilities. Uh, An important aside here, um, at, at this stage, Deleuze is dealing with notions of the possible. So when he's dealing with the living present and an anticipation of the future, that anticipation is an anticipation of possibilities in relation to particulars. This weighting is done through a scale of probability based on frequency of earlier separate events in memory, where, in line with Hume's work on probability, as shedding light on the problem of induction, something that is recorded many times in memory is given a higher probability. The Hume's problem of induction is one that uh, has been taken on board very, very strongly by Deleuze in his treatment of time and process. Deleuze draws two far-reaching conclusions on time and repetition from these remarks. First, repetition implies three moments. A passing away of objective instants due to their unrepeatable nature. And this is a passing leading to the paradox of unrepeatable things. All things, anything that's the same, is unrepeatable in Deleuze's philosophy of time. Second, there's a passive synthesis in contraction. So any synthesis is passive within this contraction in the living present the living present that you are now, concentrating the past and the future onto that living moment. It's a passive synthesis. And reflexive representation in active memory and understanding. We have all three of those moments. 
Note that repetition implies all three, such that it would be an error to say that it is only passive synthesis, a temptation that must be avoided because it dismembers Deleuze's model and locks it into a focus on a transcendental realm, separated from an actual one of passing instants and incomplete represented objects and subjects. So this interaction between two realms is one of the, the key aspects of understanding how Deleuze's process philosophy works, but also why it's going to be so shocking from a philosophical point of view. We're going to have processes that are understand, understood in terms of transcendental conditions and processes that cross between realms that have a transcendental relation to one another. It can be understood through the concept of reciprocal determination, for instance. This notion. Note also, though, that the status of each is different according to an order of priority set according to conditions and determinations. If we insist on one or other of the implied moments at the expense of the others, we miss their relation of reciprocal determination and cut up his philosophy at one of the points where he is insisting on the fateful misrepresentation implied by such distinctions. So it's a philosophy that's always insisting on con connectedness and the dangers of any form of separation or abstraction. Now the abstraction is necessary for the presentation of the philosophy, but whenever one side is elevated above the other, given priority, for instance in terms of the virtual, there a mistake comes in to, into the interpretation of the philosophy, and in particular in terms of its notion of the interconnection of processes. Hume's study feeds... Um, right, the second point of this treatment of time. Deleuze's study of Hume feeds into his study of Bergson's work on memory and on the problem of separate things, each stroke of four bells ringing. Bergson's uh, famous example, dong, dong. Also being one thing, four o'clock ringing out. Bergson's examples are uh, interesting because, uh, and this is true of, of all uh, uh, Deleuze's interpretations in terms of the construction of his philosophy of time at this point. Um, he doesn't take the treatment of the examples that he picks up from Hume and from Bergson in a full manner at all. He narrows them down. In the case of Hume, he goes from a series of uh, examples associated with moral behaviour and the passions into a pure and formal example of a couple of A-B repetitions, like the noise of the pump. A, B, A. He, he constructs that and he says, just treats it in a formal way. A, B, repetition. So he's narrowed down Hume's example by rendering it more pure. And in the case of Bergson's example, he draws it away from introspection. Bergson's uh, example of uh, four o'clock striking is worked around a particular dramatic device. And the dramatic device is the clock strikes four, but I only become aware of it after the second strike. So there's a shift in the state of consciousness in relation to the striking. And Deleuze, Bergson wants to claim that what that shift shows, or the, the fact that we are able to know that four o'clock have struck, even though we weren't paying attention to the first two strikes shows 
that there must be some kind of continuous duration of the four o'clock striking. That it's all of one piece rather than four separate strikes. Because the first two don't have the status of the second two that we focus our attention on. Nonetheless, when we arrive at the fourth, we know that it's four o'clock striking. So there must be some sense of continuity and indivisibility in the striking of the four. What Deleuze does, though, is again he purifies this and takes away Bergson's device and wants to show that it's the case even in its most pure form. Orphaned events, or the passing instants, are the condition for a passive synthesis, which is also the condition for their repetition. This synthesis is itself the condition for a later separation according to representations in memory and understanding. Separation, which is itself the condition for reproduction and reflection of those syntheses. So always a dialectic between these elements. Each one of these is necessary in Deleuze's speculative presentation, which therefore has many methodological facets. Expression of individuation in the living present, duration in Bergson and imagination in Hume, so the living present is in the example itself the striking of the four blows, or the A-B couples of the pumped striking. The power of Deleuze's speculative model is set to work straight away and is therefore also tested by him in a comparison of Hume's and Bergson's examples. These are, there are two types of dissimilarity. First, Bergson's example is of a closed repetition, four strikes only, whereas Hume's is open-ended, a series of A-B couples without limit. Second, Hume's involves cases of A-B couples, whereas Bergson has repeated undivided elements or strikes. A case involves an internal difference. An element is supposed to be whole. And what Deleuze is going to show is a dependence of cases on elements and elements on cases. And that's how he's going to make the case for the necessity of synthesis. This is because the four strikes also constitute cases, because as four o'clock strikes or unfolds, the first two strikes are an A-B couple, then so are the second and third, and then the third and fourth. It is only when the four strikes are over that they can be conceived as a set of four separate elements. The strikes are open because the four strikes can be opposed to five, and therefore another A-B couple, and so on to all the dimensions of time that include the four strokes. Equally, though, the cases are also elements when they are repeated. When we pass from an AB case to the repetition of two ABs, for instance, this latter twofold AB is itself closed and implied by the open series. Now, Deleuze is going to move on from this, move on from his attempt to demonstrate the necessity of synthesis underlying any repetition of elements or any repetition of cases. So the combining of elements into A and B, to draw a conclusion that I gloss in this way. He's going to say, we live as time makers. Anything exists as a maker of time. This means that the passive syntheses drawn together in any changing thing are processes making time as a living present through that thing. So any living present is a making of time as synthesis. 
There are therefore many and multiple living pleasants. And this is a, a problem that he's going to present. He keeps coming back to this problem of a, a danger of atomism. And he, he constantly tries to study this, this risk of atomism in this multiplicity of living presence, all with different perspectives on one another through a reflection on uh, Leibniz and Leibniz's monodology, which is why the later book on Leibniz and the Baroque is so important and so problematic. Keep having to go forward uh, and back to it. Also why Dan Smith's interpretation is so convincing in putting Leibniz at the centre of uh, Deleuze's work. There are also many ways of interacting with these living presents and Problematically, whenever we associate them with active representation, we capture a side of them and lose another. Following Hume, Deleuze calls this the problem of habit. However, he then notes how habit is often misunderstood due to an illusion coming out of psychology. It is a mistake to define habit in terms of our conscious activities, in the sense where we would say, for instance that I have deliberately acquired the bad habit of using the term that is throughout my text. You, you, you always resent things that editors say to you, don't you? But, uh, <laughs> Deleuze, instead, for Deleuze, habits are acquired through contemplation. That is, through the passive acquisition of a pattern of syntheses conditioning or determining later <coughs> activities. So my habit of using a particular term to excess can certainly be traced to actions. However, these are not a sufficient explanation of a habit because they fail to explain its relation to unconscious repetitions, retentions, expectations, conditioning the habit. This means that learning and unlearning habits must not be seen in terms of the conscious repetition of movement, for instance, but instead must be seen as an interaction with processes that we cannot directly represent or act upon. Now, there, there's a, a, a grave problem with the way I write. You'll have noticed that I always, I, we, the examples I favour are all themselves human-centred. And so, what I want to now move into is the whole problem of contemplating pebbles. Are pebbles contemplating? When I say I, could that just, and we, could that just as well apply to pebbles? So now on to the uh, central part of the paper. How am I doing for time? I, uh, you're you're to, fine. I'm fine. Okay, so let's go. On the east flank of the headland, an abrupt and eroded path leads down to a tiny pebble beach. A sickle-shaped indent among sharpened rocks, its smooth stones have been turned to a rare and much prized shape, neither too small to stick to the skin like coarse mud, nor too big to bend soles painfully. Each pebble contemplates the sea and the tides, the currents and the storms, the mass of sister pebbles, flotsam and broken shells. It is a passive synthesis of these events, a contemplating soul ground from repeated washes, like the limpet stuck to its side, contemplating it in return. And Deleuze goes on to say, those weren't Deleuze's words, they were mine, here's a quote from Deleuze, what organism is not made of repeated elements and cases. So you're going straight back to his very pure treatment of human Bergson. Any organism is a case of the synthesis of the four strikes of the clock or and the synthesis of the AB couples treated in Hume. It is made 
of repeated elements and cases, of contemplated and contracted water, nitrogen, carbon, chlorides, sulfates, thereby interweaving all the habits composing it. Now, the, the obvious problematic moment here is that we have an organism. I want to extend that reading right down to the pebbles. And I think that this is consistent with Deleuze's treatment. Do pebbles really have habits? Do they contemplate the tides? Does a limpet or an oyster have habits? Can they too contemplate grains of sand shaping their shells and infrequently the pearls forming in them? These objections to Deleuze's work on the first synthesis of time and on contraction in the living present come from at least two opposed directions. First, why speak of habit and contemplation where we have other scientific accounts of the relations between entities such as the concept of cause? Second, if we are able to speak of habits and contemplations, should we not reserve these for beings capable of action? The pebble does not synthesize the tides into its rounded shape, the objection would go, but rather the shape is caused by friction, itself caused by tides and currents. The oyster and the pearl are not contemplating the intruders entering the shell. The oyster is caused to react by the foreign body in a way that leads to the pearl. It then secretes calcium carbonate and conchiolin protein, which over time form a pearl. What need is there for mystical and misleading terms such as habit and contemplation? Why call an effect a habit and thereby hide the cause and effect relation and the many causal laws of nature governing, for example, organic compounds? So would go the the critical point. Even if we wish to criticise the concept of cause and replace it with laws and probability, for example, with uncertainty and chaotic processes, these two need no unscientific concepts such as habit and contemplation. What would these add to scientific equations and calculations if not a surplus and inhibiting metaphorical layer ripe for religious and political mystifications? So there's another moment when there's a potential mystification in Deleuze's work. Would it help a pearl farmer to say how the oyster contemplates the water it bathes in? Farmers require accounts of how the pearl is formed and which environmental states are the most propitious for this growth. They do not need redundant philosophical concepts, such as the first synthesis of time and the living present. Or, when sand is shipped in to save a failing tourist destination, should the village mayor read a treatise on the habits of pebbles or a scientific article on the complex science of tides and currents? As a counter to Deleuze's position comes the statement that the habits we acquire unconsciously are better explained as caused or as explained through scientific laws and probabilities rather than by the loose habit, a loose term of habit. Deleuze's counter-argument is driven by these objections and he gives voice to them directly. And he says, this is no barbaric or mystic- mystical hypothesis. Straight after bringing up the whole question of contemplating in the soul, he immediately raises this question of a barbaric or mystical hypothesis. His concern is to articulate his own position in such a way as to make it immune from these critical questions. 
The core of his response rests on this statement. And he says, Habit draws something new from repetition. Difference. Deleuze usually turns to italics in difference and repetition to highlight a key term used in a novel sense. For instance, the term often highlighted is the notion of sign. We need, therefore, to decide on the meaning of one of the terms in that quote, and that's draw. And perhaps more importantly, on its status. Is to draw, associated with the notion of habit, metaphorical, or is it literal? If literal, is it taken from scientific usage, as terms sometimes are in the book, or is it taken from a philosophical source, as we've seen from the notion of habit taken from Hume? A first step in deciding on an interpretation of Deleuze's use of the verb to draw, soutirer in French, is that it is not metaphorical. The verb does not stand for another process it is meant to allude to or represent, but rather habit is a process drawing on repetition. What, though, does to draw from or to draw out mean here? In a preliminary sense, it is to draw out difference from a repetition. We not only know this from the statement, but also because habit, for Deleuze, has been defined in relation to repetition, which we know must involve a difference running along a series. We also know that this difference lies in a synthesis or contraction of a series. So habit is about the creation of a difference, but where the difference itself cannot be a represented identity. Every time I use the word creation, I think of you, uh, Peter, and so I keep having to go through my text and rewriting it. <laughs> that one slipped through there. <laughs> Instead, following Deleuze's work in the previous chapter of difference and repetition, difference in itself, this difference must be a varying relation rather than a fixed quantity or quality, or an identified and limited body. Habit draws a differential variation from repetition. It does not do the same thing as the common sense understanding might lead us to assume, but on the contrary creates a change or becoming in the series. Now, soutirer, or to draw, is a technical term with a chemical basis for wine-making, in terms of Deleuze's usage of it. It is one of the many taken from chemistry and biology used by Deleuze when he wants to point to this differential variation. So sometimes he uses another term, ebullition, that he uh, takes partly from uh, Piggy's use of it. The term means to draw wine from one barrel into another, for instance, in order to remove sediment. It is important, however, not to identify the concept with the casks or the wines in their apparently fixed states in each one. The process Deleuze wants to map his philosophical concept on is not the passage from one state to another. Instead, Deleuze is interested in the process itself and, more precisely, in the introduction of a difference in intensity, a differential variation in the process synthesized in time, as time. So it's a difference that emerges between the two barrels that's important for Deleuze. So habit is a contraction not in the sense of a passage from a dilated to a contracted state, as Deleuze says about heartbeats, for instance, elsewhere. We can now better understand what habit is as retention and expectation. It is the synthesis of a variation in intensity over events, where retention is the absorption of past variations and expectation, the impulse 
an expectation, the impasse to future ones. So the whole point in reading Deleuze in this way is to arrive at definitions with no subject in them whatsoever at that point. However, isn't this appeal to a term from winemaking and other processes of drawing metaphorical in exactly the way denied earlier? It is here that we need to return to Deleuze's method. He is not using the verb soutirer to represent something else, but rather taking an observation of the process of drawing and constructing a novel philosophical concept from it. And that, that's the, the, the properly speculative moment in Deleuze's treatment. Drawing from means the synthesis of a series in a novel manner, such that differences in intensity appear within the series and contract it differently in relation to other series. The new barrel changes the relations of in, in intensity to earlier ones and later ones. It changes the relations to our noses and palates, the relations to the crushing of the grapes, the soil where the vines grew, sunshine and rain, pruning and training. This explains the importance of the living present as synthesis. The novel reaction is the living present as a contraction of all the series around it into something new, where they are retained differently and lead to different expectations or forward momentum. And there need be no awareness of this whatsoever. So Deleuze's answer to the critique based on, cause, based on cause and effect is therefore that the process he is defining and describing is not about associated, identified causes and effects repeating in the same way over time. Instead, it is about a novel variation continuing to vary, thereby constituting time as a synthesis of the variation. If we draw a wine from one barrel to another we can identify a causal relation between tannins and astringency in the wine and explain that wine will always be less astringent or tannic if an amount of sediment is left in the first barrel. It's one of the reasons you, you do the, the drawing. Deleuze, though, wants to explain something different, and that's the way in which a variation in intensity changes past and future relations through all series stretching out from the living present. The contrast can be thought of as the distinction between an explanation of why things remain the same over time and an explanation of why they vary over time and in all ways. It can also be thought as the difference between the conditions for similarity within a structure and variations in a system, although Deleuze changes the structure and system, use of those terms throughout his work. Have I got another five minutes? Is that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, this allows us to consider another important question about the relation of the two explanatory structures. Should we think of them as either-or options, where we either have an account consistent with philosophical naturalism, and hence one that follows the latest science, or one based on Deleuze's work on the conditions for difference in repetition? Is it an either-or? The answer to this question is that Deleuze's work combines both positions. It does so for the important reason that without sameness, for instance, as captured in reliable relations of cause and effect, Deleuze would have no actual events to refer to, and he would fall into the trap of a world of pure becoming, and the paradox that if all is becoming, then there is nothing to ensure continuity of reference through time. Indifference and repetition, Deleuze considers this paradox through a study of Plato, from a philosophical point of view, and through an analysis of the concept of disparity, a very important reading in chapter 5 of Difference and Repetition, from the point of view of the sciences. 
From both angles, he does not seek to deny scientific evidence and theories, but instead seeks to complement, and that relation of complementarity is very important, Comple- uh, as a, from your work, uh, Dominic, this relation of complementarity uh, with an account of the role of difference as taking a primary but never complete role in relation to determination between actual identities and ideal differentiations. We sh- can and should consider an event as the referent of scientific accounts. However, these accounts are incomplete unless taken with a more speculative model, explaining the intensive difference, making each event different. So it's this relation of completion and complementarity that's crucial. So, winding things up now. Deleuze's use of the concept of soul is consistent with Hume's use of the term in relation to the imagination and the effects of distance and contiguity. This adoption of an outmoded term, though, must not be interpreted as a return to a theological or philosophical obscure set of ideas. Instead, soul has a precise meaning in Deleuze's metaphysics. The soul is his word for the intensive difference contracted by habit. So there's a soul as soon as there's an intensive difference. It is the difference allowing a series of events to be synthesised in a living present, as different from identifications and representations of sameness to other events. So uh, a growing porosity of a pebble would be one of the places from whence we can start to trace back the use of soul and its soul in the Deleuzean sense. The soul of anything is therefore the singular way in which it contracts past and future series. This does not mean that the thing does not have an identity that can be referred to and treated according to causality, reliable scientific laws, probabilities and so on. It is rather that the soul explains why a thing is not only such an identity and identification. It is also why Deleuze insists on the singularity of each thing, where no two grains of wheat or of sand are the same. Thus the soul is to be associated with a process of individuation, and anything therefore has a soul. Because as we have seen in Deleuze's study of repetition, anything must be a repetition of difference. Yet, since this synthesis is passive, we must also say that the soul is contemplation rather than action. And I'll finish with a a last uh, quote from Deleuze on this. We must attribute, he says, a soul to the heart, to the muscles, the nerves, the cells. But it is a contemplative soul whose role is to contract habit. And I'll stop there. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that was great. Um, we have about 30 minutes for questions. Um, we'd like to open the floor um, if, if anyone has, has anything to... Um, if, if everyone wants to take a moment to think, uh, I, I could uh, begin by... Um, just asking you to maybe expand a bit on this complementarity between philosophy and science. It seems to me that um, uh, 
it seems to me the way Deleuze is, is making use of science is kind of extracting elements from scientific work but using them in a non-scientific way maybe to account for something that science is unable to. Um, I, I was hoping maybe you could expand a little bit on on, on the specificity of this unaccountability. There, there are two things uh, going on here. Um, on, on the one hand, there's a question about um, what Deleuze is doing when he picks up uh, specific examples from science, and I think that they are examples. Uh, when he's doing that, he's then feeding into this moment that I call the speculative moment of his mm. work, a- and from the scientific example, constructing a philosophical concept. So the speculative move is is to be uh, consistent with a certain science, mm. but then to uh, take terms from that mm. and feed them into the philosophy. So that's a speculative move. One of the results of that, one of the ways that then plays out in terms of the relation of philosophy to science, this time not in terms of what what philosophy takes from science in terms of um, examples that lead into a conceptual framework, perhaps a methodology, Mm. uh, is how then philosophy interacts with science in terms of... um, their relative status, for instance. There, uh, science is an essential moment within Deleuze in relation to the actual or the same. The actual or the same shouldn't be taken from common sense. Um, It's uh, taken from uh, specific examples from the science. So uh, an example of that would be um, where you can see both both of these things at work both of these processes would be in relation to Simondon. There's a lot of work going on in relation to Simondon, um, in particular uh, following Alberto Toscano's work. Now, um, uh, but it's also being done by um, Pierre Montebello, who I should have mentioned earlier, um, because often people don't um, take account of the French readings outside France as much as, as perhaps they ought to, but Pierre Mont- Montebello, alongside... Um, uh, Bryant uh, is one of the readers of uh, Deleuze who, who views Deleuze as a transcendental thinker but then changes it. So that's a parenthesis. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, to mention Montebello's uh, work. Um, I- in the work on Simondon, you can see the moment where Deleuze constructs a philosophical concept coming out of uh, the notion of individuation. Um, but in terms of the complementarity what Deleuze is going to say about the relation between an actual, um, in this case, egg, or, but it could be um, uh, a grain of wheat, and that is another example, and its uh, wider virtual and intensive moments is going to be built around the science of, for instance, the egg, or the science of, uh, of wheat, and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. And so, if I, were I to take Deleuze further along that line, it would always to be to look at the latest science. And it's not that that science would be a challenge to Deleuze. It would be a, a moment for... Um, expansion is the wrong word. Uh, a moment for, yes, completion. Mm-hmm. Showing other sides and perspectives. Um, where would this come out most strongly? It would come out most strongly where you have to relate separate realms or realms that appear to be separate.
One where there's a particular scientific account mm -hmm. and uh, a broader, for example, political question or economic question. Where you have to relate these realms, that's where the philosophical mediation would, would come in. So, so Deleuze is not anti-science in, in both of those ways. Thank you. Hi, Nathan. Uh, yeah, uh, I, if I heard you correctly at the beginning, you said you were critical of the mathematization. Yeah. Um, well, uh, firstly, yeah, I'd like you to say why. Mm. Um, is that because you perceive this kind of supplementary um, necessity of metaphysics? Mm. Would that also, not in just regard to inductive science, would that apply to deductive mathematics as well? Yes, and uh, the, the point where, and it's not um, fully worked through, but the point where I have worries with respect to the mathematization is uh, where you have uh, a philosophical concept, differentiation for instance, and you associate it with a particular account of differentiation within the mathematics. Uh, when you do that, I think that there is a danger of... Um, of working against the consistency in, in relation to the interconnections between philosophical concepts. So, for example, if you have differentiation, in Deleuze, differentiation is going to be associated with dramatization. In his, his big idea of indie drama differentiation. If, if you treat differentiation strictly in relation to the mathematics, whether it's according to Dan Smith's reading and you do it according to um, a, an historical source, a mathematical source, in particular Leibniz, or whether you do it uh, with the Delander reading, which is a contemporary source, I think that there is a danger of a restriction of the philosophical concept. Now, uh, th there are all sorts of risks in making that argument because that restri restriction may itself be a good thing. It may introduce an element of rigour and fixity into the concept, uh, whereas uh, the usage that I would be giving uh, might be overly poetic to, to, to push it too, too far. So that's, that's the main worry. So it's not a macro worry about the mathematization. The macro worry about the mathematization is a different one. It's the one raised by Bryant um, and others is if you can get caught, even if you use mathematics in relation to a certain kind of dogmatism. And this can be seen in, in debates about um, uh, mathematics and platonic ideas, for example. So if you start to think about worries about um, uh, Deleuze in relation to um, work on uh, Cavaliers and Lortman and any implied Platonism in their work, particularly in, in relation to, to Lortman. So, so those are the kinds of worries. Does that introduce a kind of Platonism? What would it be? Uh, so does, that, does that kind of respond? Those are, those are the two motivations. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Alex? Um, thanks very much, James. I've, I've got kind of two questions, mm -hmm. one which is kind of pro-habit and one which was against habit. Um, I'll go for the against habit one first. In your examples that you Mm. You chose the pebbles, which is kind of a very calm and kind of benevolent example of like the slow washing, mm. which forms the pebbles on, on the beach and eventually reduces the pebbles into sand. Mm. But it seems to me that sometimes in the natural world we have events which are very sudden. Mm. Like, mm. So you have a kind of a geological change mm. in your examples, but there are also examples of very sudden things that happen, and mm -hmm. for that you would have to bring in some kind of category of the event. Mm. It seems to me 
simply not how all, all the events of nature are, and the world aren't simply like a geological mm. That's my like, anti habit, my pro mm. habit. Uh, when it's, could you perhaps say something with regard to other thinkers who talked about habit, like Ravisson, and also perhaps even Aristotle on kind of moral habits that mm. form virtuous character? Mm. Okay, so it's two very different questions. Um, if I've got you, uh, 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 fascinating. Um, if I've got you uh, right, um, the, the two potential um, criticisms of the notion of habit in your in your example of, of cataclysmic events. Um, on the one hand, uh, there could be the criticism that they're not uh, habitual in terms of uh, repetition. So that would be a really strong uh, critique. And, and the second um, way in which they're dangerous in terms of uh, my, doubly dangerous, uh, in relation to, to my reading uh, of uh, habit is that they, they seem to bring in a notion of scale that's very hard to, to account for. So, so let's treat, treat these um, in, in two ways. The cataclysmic event um, would be treated in relation to the element case. This is distinction and interaction. And so what can be viewed as a cataclysmic event on a, on a, on a big scale will depend on treating it as an element. But in fact itself will be multiple, internally multiple. And uh, will have many sub-habitual traces coming out from it. And so I would claim that a cataclysmic event is um, a depends upon uh, the imposition of a model of an identification with a certain set of limits That doesn't then that can then be subdivided into its habitual moments, and so so look, sort of to, to to bring it down on on that beach, there will be cataclysmic events, um, and even in terms of the on the scale of that pebble. Um, so at some point you wake up and the beach is completely gone one morning. Right? Um, that doesn't mean though that it going can't be connected and related to all the habitual repetitions that came before. So, so that's, that's, that's the first thing. However, to come back uh, to, to the notion of scale, now the, the, the notion of scale um, is particularly problematic. Right? So I don't think I've got a good ready answer to it. It's something that I'm working on at the moment. And I'll, I'll, I'll say why. Uh, because it relates very strongly to Deleuze's reading, not of the first synthesis of time, but the third synthesis of time, uh, the eternal return of difference. And the eternal return of difference means that, in some sense, any event is cataclysmic, involves a complete change throughout uh, a system of, of, of series. Um, but it also means that any event has its own internal scale. The intensity that you saw there in contemplation is something 
that, that, that involves its own scale such that any external conception of um, big or small scale doesn't apply. Making that statement is extremely problematic, and I feel very uncomfortable making it. And I'm writing about this exactly now because it seems to um, commit one to very, very... Um, what's the best way of putting this? Isolationist ethics. Because all of a sudden, you're caught into in series of, of overlapping worlds that come down to singular contemplations where we can't make a judgment of priority or importance uh, on ethical and therefore political grounds. So, one thing when writing about uh, Deleuze's philosophy of time, in particular writing it in relation to to Leibniz, um, and thinking about it in relation to Spinoza as well, is in relation to, for example, the, 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 the... thing that preys on philosophy's mind, uh, the Lisbon, Lisbon earthquake, and Voltaire's treatment of it, and, and so on. Um, how to, to draw back from this speculative philosophy of time into um, a position that can have a notion of scale that's ethically and politically relevant is something that I find very difficult. But I want to do, but I find it very difficult. Um, so, so it's not a really good answer to that second part of the question at all. It's saying, no, there isn't that scale in this treatment. Yes, I'd like there to be some way of responding to the, to the question. So, like all, it's an awkward question. You've made me squirm. Uh, Pete, you're next. Uh, I'm going to kind of sort of follow on from that question, which is, um, um, I'm sort of interested to to get your take on the relationship between um, habit thought as contemplation mm. and what Deleuze calls the thought within thought. What elsewhere gets called the thought, shock to thought or yeah. intensity or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it seems that when Deleuze is talking about the thought within thought, the, the, the thought that's the second thought that's within seems to be contemplation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's very much linked to a... Uh, uh, an idea of the kind of disruptive event, cataclysmic event or whatever, mm. which causes something mm. like adaptation. Mm. You know, a, a, a radical you know, reconfiguration of, of, of the, the original process of contemplation. Mm. Um, and I, I'm sort of interested to get your take on... Because you seem to suggest that the, okay, everything's contemplating. Yeah. Everything is, every, everything's, everything's a, a habit. Mm. Um, and you seem to suggest that everything as that habit is, is engaged in a very gradual process of adaptation, mm, mm, right? Yeah. Um, and then there is this, this more cataclysmic conception of, of disruption causing radical adaptation. So I wanted to know what, yeah. what your conception of the relationship yeah. is. The, the answer to that, or, or, or attempt at an answer, it is through Deleuze's treatment of, of these sensitive times as dimensions of one another. So, so what, what Deleuze does is he, um, uh, let's call the third synthesis eternal return, it's not, it's, that's not quite right. What he does is, all, all I've done today is spoken about the first synthesis of time. Um, 
Now, what the first synthesis of time, each synthesis does, is it makes um, the others dimensions of it. And so uh, the past becomes a dimension that way, and the, present, uh, and the future a dimension that way, under a particular definition, right? Uh, a particular restriction. So the past is restricted. It's not that it isn't that, and that, and that isn't that. That's the one in which you have this, what, you, what we describe as smooth. Now, the, the, the second aspect, the thought within thought, that occurs in terms of the third synthesis of time, which makes this, the present, all of a sudden becomes a dimension of the future, and the past becomes a dimension of the future. Equally, you have the same process here. Now, the, the moment of the new occurs when the present is a dimension of the future. So that's how, how it works. So structurally, the answer is that um, it occurs in a different account or a different synthesis of time. That's not satisfactory, though, not fully satisfactory, because it invites this, this huge problem with Deleuze's treatment in relation of talking about three synthesis of time, each one working by making the two others a dimension of it. And it, 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 the problem occurs when you ask the question, what, what's their relation overall? What's, what's the overall picture? How, how do they um, interrelate? And the answer is that, in fact, they operate in one another. So the, the living present depends upon the notion of the eternal return as well. So the, 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 the living present, that, that habit, that, that, that passive moment that I, that I described, the living present also, though, has a moment of novelty. And so there is an operation of that thought within thought within the living present. But it's only treated with its full force when the present is a dimension of the future. But the thing is, that, that, are you suggesting then that there are different moments at which... No. You know, no. no. Uh, what I'm suggesting is uh, that any um, event... Uh, can be viewed or must be viewed under three different time perspectives according to the first synthesis of time the second synthesis of time and the third synthesis of time I'm also saying that these can't be viewed as completely separate as if we have this picture of the event this picture of the event this picture of the event they have to be viewed together but there's no principle of reduction that would allow for the determination of one of them as the prior one they're only prior, each on their own terms. So, so that, that's the answer. Now, it, it's, a, it's a really sort of... It gets right down to it, this question, because there's a lot of textual evidence to say that's not right. Really, the prior synthesis is this one, the one of the eternal return. So you find statements by Deleuze supporting that. Um, and also... But there's enormous danger in doing that. Because when you do that, if, and the account of the eternal return, that's the point when you're going to be most open to the accusation that Deleuze is the philosopher of the one. 
in the account of eternal return. And I also think that it, that it impoverishes the conception of process, uh, where I would view all three syntheses uh, together. So I, I would have different perspectives of priority depending on which one you're, you're using. So, so that would be the answer. And Peter? Yeah, thanks a lot, Dennis. I, I'm, um, I'm still stuck a bit on the idea of pebbles as organisms. Right. So I wonder if you could try and explain that again in a way that um, a kind of skeptic might, might be able to understand. Because it mm. seems like mm. your explanation, although you're perfectly aware of the objection, mm. I won't restate it because you said it very clearly, but it seems like your explanation presupposes the thing you're trying to explain, unless, unless you explained it at the beginning, which is possible, I claim in a bit late. Um, because the idea, of, you, you know, the, the attribution of a living present as the dimension of habit and so on already presupposes the problem we're trying to consider, right? Which is, are pebbles alive, and what's in what different, you know, in what meaningful sense? How are, how are they individuated as alive in a way that would respect you know, the criteria I assume that we want to retain between different kinds of individuals, mm. and in particular the notion of soul, right? Because Although you can say, you can, you can insist that we can distinguish it from this obscure, you know, theologically contaminated notion, I'm not sure it's so easy. Mm -hmm. I mean, at what point did the soul, the soul become a redundant concept? Wasn't it at the point when, when we didn't need to refer process of individuation back to something like a Leibnizian notion of a, of a monadic essence? And at that point, the concept of soul becomes precisely obscure. At best, it becomes an idea with Kant, and really, I think it just becomes a kind of vitalist obscurity. And I don't see what it what it gives us. If we're looking for an account by all means of individuation of pebbles or grains of sand or anything else, what does the principle of the soul add to the available accounts we've got without you know, isn't it essentially redundant or metaphorical? Okay, that can be approached in, in, in two ways. Um, first the the way in terms of the latter part of your question, uh, in terms of the history of the disappearance of the concept of soul. Now, um, within the Kantian model, for example, what, what Deleuze is trying to do and what, what this does and treating time as process is also providing a critique of that other method of individuation. So, for example, a spatio-temporal individuation, even one in accordance with a form of relativity, there's a really interesting question of, of relating a Deleuzean process um, uh, account of time's process and a Whiteheadian one. Um, and Whitehead's whole discussion of relativity in, in process and reality. But, but th th that method of individuation is one that um, Deleuze's account provides a critical resource against because the way in which it distinguishes is external in some way, in the, on the Kantian model in particular. And that externality misses something of the individual and the individuation. So each time, when you have an individuation, let, let's imagine that it's made on, on a spatiotemporal loca location, is to show that there's a thinness to that that doesn't account to what we would want to value within the distinction. Now you're going to come back and so let's move into the first part of the question. You're going to say, I've just done that circle again. Because all I've said and, and 
What is it you're going to value? It's intensity. Two ways of approaching that. First is um, I think that that moment of intensity is one of those speculative moments. Saying we are positing this. We can't demonstrate it. But we can start to give arguments in terms of how it relates to other aspects of the system. And let's see how uh, one would do it. One would do it in relation to a problem. If you have a a set of uh, of questions about something, a a particular um, problem to resolve... um, you can resolve it best through a notion of individuation associated with this notion of soul and through the notion of contemplation, my answer would be. And so two pebbles would be distinguished not um, in vacuo, not, not in abstraction, but always in relation to the um, problem driving the need to distinguish them at all. So an extra term is is brought in. Now, again, there's potential difficulty difficulties there because you're going to say to me, yeah, but, but a problem is going to be the way in which I reintroduce through the back door some kind of notion of human value or whatever. Um, but that that need not be the case at all. The, the problem could be uh, phrased in ways in which you have no human subject, no human observer w- whatsoever. It could be, um, why did this pebble arrive here rather than there? And the, the Deleuzean claim, or the claim that I want to draw out of Deleuze, is that the explanation would not be complete would not be the fullest explanation, in particular in relation to the problem, everything that's driving it, unless you bring in this notion of individuation associated with intensity and so on. But I'll grant you that that, that, that particular point of intensity, on my reading, other interpretations of Deleuze are much better at handling it, on my reading, would have an answer. So I would say, well, sure, let's see the pebbles, let's see the problem while we're approaching them and so on. And then you can start to move towards the whole question of um, a, an account of individuation that's not dependent upon a wider shared frame, an abstract frame. So that's how I try and do it anyway. Um, we only have a few minutes left, so Adrian, if you'd like to... Um, well, thank you for... Uh presentation. Thanks. Uh, now, my question has to do with uh, the need to call in a sort of speculative supplement or complement in relation to scientific strategies of explanation, particularly when we're talking about uh, what we would normally call inorganic you know, right. entities that can be captured at the level of physics. Mm. Uh, now, let's take as an example uh, coin tossing. Mm. Now, on the one hand, of course, you could have expressed in terms of certain laws of physics 
formulas which would capture lowest common denominators which will be instantiated uh, each time a coin is tossed as a physical object that will behave in certain ways. Now we know, of course, that those formulas, though, can capture something that absolutely singularizes and renders unique each instance of each event of a particular coin toss. However, it seems with this example at least, you have a case where what would allow you to account for the absolutely singular, completely individuated, unique status of each coin toss would be just a fuller intra-scientific account. For instance, all right, which human hand is doing the tossing, what the position of the moon is relative to the Earth in terms of its gravitational pull, how humid the air is, and that, of course, you know, exhaustively cataloging all of this might not be feasible for finite beings with a limited amount of time to couch their explanations. But in principle, the idea would be that at a purely physical level, it's just a matter of a convergence of multiple uh, forces that can be explicated in principle in intra-scientific cause and effect sort of language without having to reach for a sort of speculative or uh, uh, you know, extra scientific supplement to account for that individuation. So I'm just curious what you or Deleuze you know, would say in response to, at least in this instance, why there would still be a justification with pebbles or coins for calling into play something more than just mul a multiplication of scientific explanations in order to enrich and, and, and pick out the singularity of the given event or entity. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, one first step is to say that there's, there's already a restriction in that example um, of uh, the uh, coin toss to um, a certain set of forces and causes and, and so on. So, so uh, the... The, the connections, the syntheses that I've just described are ones that, that, that wouldn't have um, any limits in principle. So, so that's, that's, a, that's the first one. So um, you'd have to, to include imagination, for instance, uh, within, within the toss. Uh, and uh, uh, and so, so therefore your account is perhaps committed to... to um, perhaps right, but a reductive account of of, uh, of the brain or, or, or the mind. So uh, once you you expand that, then then you start to have things that are not quite so easy to account for in that way. Um, and so, for instance, I wouldn't want to to rule out a notion of unconscious, for instance, e even from a coin toss. Uh, so that's one one move. The the second one. And these are just critical moves, so I need to try and find a positive one as well. The second one is that you have a speculative moment. In, in your, you have two speculative moments in, in your account. Um, the, the first speculative moment is, is one in terms of the selection of the science. It would be very different 500 years ago. It would be very different in 500 years. It might be so in such a way that you couldn't possibly say that you were adding more to the science. At some point, you're going to change it all completely. Uh, so that's that's one. And and the second one is uh, that there is a um, a speculative moment um, it, in your notion of going on infinitely. Finding it right. Those are the the, the, the critical uh, points that could come out of a reading of Deleuze. Positively, um, in terms of uh, the uh, coin toss, uh, toss, the coin toss, um, uh, would be in relation 
to what um, are you asking the question? It isn't only that you're looking at series that, that come down like this of, of forces onto the coin toss. It's rather that the coin toss is also going outwards um, with a, a whole series of, of effects. It could be the coin toss that decides on um, the uh, beheading of the Queen of England. Um, now, should I have said that? Am I <laughs> <laughs> Fermer ce micro. And so, once you start looking at it in terms of that, um, then, um, because your, your question is a version uh, of, um, of Peter's, uh, once you start looking at that, then, um, I think, is the moment when you start to reintroduce uh, transcendental accounts and accounts that, that um, involve this speculative moment. Because you're not just looking at um, past and future related in some... Obviously, the latest science, it isn't deterministic anyway, right? Um, but you're looking at past and future in terms of a set of interrelations that uh, can't be viewed according to a restriction of the relation of past to future that either deterministic or probabilistic, statistical, and so on. It's a different relation of past to future. Whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know, but I'm, I'm just presenting as that's the answer. Thank you. Um, with that, we will uh, we'll break. Thanks to James again.
So the particular question I would say is, how do fillers uh, change Spinoza's conception of substance? Right. So in Spinoza, um, God's substance you know, uh, is the fundamental ground of sufficient reason. Right. And it has there's an idea of substance which contains the content of everything, such that you could say, well, the complete deterministic plan of creation is already contained within yeah, God. And so that's the kind of sort of transcendent critique. Yeah. That's, that's like, yeah. But the thing is, is that really? people who accuse the words of the fields of the waters of some kind of transcendent principles are basically accusing them of being Spinoza. But actually, and Deleuze can't, in this system, have something like Spinoza's God because it is such a. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a stronger version of the principles of university, because it would, it would mean fundamentally two different kinds of entities going to fresh and normal weeds. So the question is, well, okay, what has the words transformed substance into? Right. So the one is still there. What is it? Right. What I'd say is, instead of being a fundamental principle, a transcendent principle which contains the determination of everything in advance, all of this is a limit. So what you what you'd say is something like the words the words is com- completely determinist like Spinoza. Right. He thinks that everything has capacities and tendencies, virtualities, right, and that these virtualities partially determine the actual states that these things well, actualize, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, the point would be that this partial determination is only yeah, becomes complete yeah, determination in this context. Mm-hmm. And that only becomes you know, total in the total yeah, context. So it's only the totality of an entities interacting which ever produces the actual deterministic effect. So whichever capacities of entities are actualized are always necessarily actualized, just like Spinoza. Mm-hmm. But then their necessary actualization does not receive its ground in something like a transcendent principle in advance. It's just the limit of the totality of all entities. So in that sense, yes, Deleuze is a philosopher of the law, but he doesn't suffer from any of the problems of those classic oddball theological conceptions of the law. In that sense, I think the whole Bajuian criticism, not only does it, is it, it miss the point, it actually misses the originality of Deleuze. Because what he's done is to make determinism and the principle of sufficient reason um, uh, compatible with, with um, a, a rejection of theology. Whereas, in, I think, to the extent like in Bidu and Melissa, you almost go the opposite way and end up with negative because you end up appealing to some kind of supplement of determination rather than just being themselves. I think that means you've actually got to, you've got to grab the bull by the horns. And I think, I think well, the Understanding how the the, the eternal return relates to this mm. idea of a limit is is is, is That's fascinating. I've never thought of, of reading eternal return as a limit. I'm, I'm just well, if eternal, let's say it's, it's. I think that the limit is the plane eminence. So see, you, you call the plane eminence is the equivalent of substance. Um, the eternal return, I think, is is fundamentally bound up with it. So I think basically the plane eminence and the eternal return are the two sides of being in the lows, and they basically correspond to space and time. Um, the point about eternal return is what eternal return guarantees is that there's no such thing as uh, uh, a smallest present, or no such thing as a smallest uh, entity out of which everything else can be constituted. Meaning that there's always the possibility of some kind of um, disruption of anything emerging from the, the, the kind of extensive interaction of things. Yeah. No, hard, that's right. no, hard, hard, hard to describe this one. Yeah. This, this is where it actually, actually giving an account of how these, these things relate to one another is very, very difficult. Yeah. But I think that's where the, the difficulty and the, 
the, the interest in flows for right. I think it's for Dewey and criticism. Just my, uh, my no, I'm just finishing a chapter on eternal return. It's, it's aging me by the morning. <laughs> but that's really interesting. Yeah. Because I would agree with you about, about the, the critique of bad youth. But um, there has to be that real realization. I need to think more about, about these relations of dimension. Well, so the relation to Spinoza is fascinating, you should have brought that up, because uh, I was just looking at the way in which uh, the concept of adequate is taken by Deleuze, but um, from Spinoza, but changed. And so, so now adequate, but an idea is not adequate um, in relation to its causes. Uh, but he still wants to say something is adequate, which is fascinating. Yeah, I, 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 always, I always get wary about... Um, I, I often think that, although I think Deleuze... I think the, the, a really good way of understanding Deleuze is understanding how he changes from Spinoza. Um, he likes Spinoza too much, to the extent at which he's really, really shy about expressing differences between... Uh, to the point at which even he'll, he'll retain some Spinozistic terminology... Yeah. She's totally changing the meaning of <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it. Uh, and it makes it means actually sometimes understanding is radicality. Yeah. Is, is hard. Yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think there's, there's some very interesting stuff in the eternal return. Mm, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. I was say, I've given eternal return a whole chapter. I think the stuff you were saying about scales as well ties in. Oh yeah, that's crucial. That the scales is is is. is well, because I think I think there's an this. important sense in which you could view. Um, sorry if I'm. No, no. no feel. Um, there's an important sense in which you could view. Um, um, thought understood as contemplation, right? And the thought within thought, or you know, the shock of thought or intensity, or whatever you want to call it, um, as being basically two sides of the same coin. Um, and the, 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 the difference between those t- sides is precisely constituted by differences in scale. So, although we're talking about the gradual development of a particular thing, you know, through this process of habituation, right, over a long period of time, in fact, you could say, at a lower, like, lower scale, that's constituted by a whole series of, from that, that point of view, radical right? Um, that's, that's just, so you, yeah. you, you were emphasising like the opposite, yeah. that the fact that, yeah. that a larger radical disruption is constituted out of this, yeah. a bunch yeah. of you know, more ordinary. Yeah. But I, I think actually no, the, the other way of looking at it. Absolutely, and that does come down to the dimensions, yeah. to, to the way in which eternal return. You were working on philosophy of language last time. I still am. I don't really work on It's an excursion on metaphysics, isn't it? Well, I'm intending to get to metaphysics. Right. But yeah, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about Deleuze's, Deleuzean metaphysics and particularly thinking about the inadequacies of most interpretations from my perspective. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a few pet peeves. Good ones and, coming out. And the Bejewian critique is yeah, a no, real pet peeve. That one isn't going to survive as a major one, but um, there are others coming out. Yeah. So that's oh, good. Well, thanks for that. Good question. But, but one of the, the ways in which um, he looks at it 
Well, there are two different directions in which he looks at it. One is in relation of a passing present to the pure past. Mm. And the pure past, um, because um, it uh, allows no representation, um, has no um, object-like content, uh, is such that um, uh, any passing present is necessarily a forgetting. It is necessarily, um, whenever it's drawn back, is, is forgotten. So there's a necessity to the process that, that Deleuze can therefore um, connect his reading of Bergson on the pure past to his reading of, of Nietzsche and Klosowski on, on um, eternal return. And so, so that's one aspect of the necessity of, of forgetting. And the other aspect of the necessity of forgetting, he actually takes from Klosowski at the, that point in the closing passages of... Um, closing parts of uh, chapter two of Difference and Repetition, where he discusses uh, Klosowski's reading in relation to eternal return. And um, because the same can never return, again, there's a necessary forgetting. What, what's, what's important about that, though, is that necessary forgetting um, can also become uh, part of a principle of affirmation. You affirm by forgetting. So it's in the struggle to uh, to not forget or to maintain or to burden oneself, to use Nietzschean uh, m- model, uh, what, what, what you're doing is you're sort of increasing the uh, power of the um, of the passing of the same, the necessary passing of the same. And so you're associating yourself with death and so on. And so what you have to do to counter it, or what occurs in, in eternal return, is the affirmation of difference is in fact the only way we can truly reminisce. So he associates it with his work on, um, uh, on Proust as well, on, on true reminiscence. So, so that bit on Klosowski I really like in, in Difference and Repetition. So, so it fits in perfectly. And, and obviously he writes about, about the importance of forgetting also in relation to, um, uh, to Nietzsche and Nietzsche and philosophy. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. I just, so I just need to catch up with the reading and yeah. get everything. Yeah, it fits in really well. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Hi. Hi. I just want to introduce myself. Austin Smith. Oh, hi, Austin. How good are see you? you. Yeah. Very well. You as well. Yeah. As well. So thank you very much for the presentation. But I just oh, wanted thanks. to come up and introduce yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good to see you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think John is going to be around as well. Okay, uh, the great. Yeah. great, great. Yeah, I was looking forward to coming up and checking out the sites and yeah. enjoying the, oh, the ocean view. Yeah, it's nice. It's a beautiful view. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, that's no, a good place to be, and this gives you a good sense of what it's like to be here to come to yeah. the conference. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. And then, I mean, honestly, I've, I've read some of your works and I've read uh, some of Dr. Malecki's works, so mm. I kind of have. Uh, an idea of where you are. Yeah, how oh, good. Yeah. Conceptually, so <laughs> that's helping. And plus, I have a pretty open communication with Michael, so oh, good. we yeah. can talk quite a bit about pros, cons, which they're mostly pros. Yeah, so. no, pros and cons for everything. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, no, Mike's been fantastic for the place, Michael. Yeah. And got so much energy. I know, I know, that is that is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, stop it's walking. contagious. Certainly <laughs> <laughs> so. is. I'm going to yeah. rub okay. this out. Great, but thank you very much. No, and, cheers. And, and nice yeah, to meet you. Yeah, yeah. you well, and right. if you have any questions or anything, don't hesitate to email me or John. Okay. We'll, we'll always respond. Um, Great. We're not, um, 
abstract. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, honestly, I think what it is right now is I'm just waiting to hear back from funding, which will really determine oh, yeah. decisions. And at this point, I know funding is a, is a real pain for, for the UK. It's, we, well, it's not just the UK. It's yeah, I mean, everywhere. Yeah, it's yeah. true, but... Uh, but yeah, but oh, I hope it works out. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. Me as well, me as well. So, well, I think I'm gonna go grab a bite. But uh, you do I that, and uh, I'll see you. I see you at the rest okay. of the thing. Yeah. I think they're all in here, aren't they? So that's good. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I can relax now. <laughs>
Is it is it a wedding? Is that what's going on? It must be, yeah. I saw a lot of kilts. Yeah. And short dresses. Sounds like a wedding. I remember a wedding last night in a hotel when I saw a lot of kilts and short dresses as well. What are you talking about? At the apex. That's close to the transition now, is it? It's down there by the uh, by the harbor. Is it a nice view over there? Yeah, it's pretty nice. It was actually the uh, the cheaper of the ones that I found on uh, on the computer. Okay. So how much you pay? It's like sixty-five pounds a night. It's about what I'm paying to it. I mean, it was like some sort of discount, because I, I think there's Wednesdays, so if I got I at least three days, and I got like forty percent off. Since Wednesday, since Wednesday, well, yeah. yeah. I've never been to Scotland, so I decided to travel around here. I'll be driving around. This is my spring break, so from uh, from school, so I don't know where to be. Do you get uh, reasonable financial support from the University of Trail? Do you have to pay out of pocket? Well, they're paying. They're, essentially, they're paying the, the amount they're giving will cover airfare and uh, hotel. So that's not bad. That's great. How do you find Scotland? Uh, no, I'm presenting, actually. Um, What's your name? Nathan. Nathan. Yeah. Brown, right? Oh, hi. Ali Come a long way? Uh, up from London. So it wasn't too bad. It's like... That's right. Uh, yeah, it was, actually. I came in from Amsterdam, so it's about now. Oh, okay. You know Surprised by Dundee, it's quite nice This is a joke I know. Me too. That's what I was told. So imagining like the sailors crossing and everything rusted. It's like very yeah, no, no. the object and the subject. Because the sunshine helps, but I mean, even without the sun, it's still like it's still clean and there's no like everything you can expect in a functioning city. There's no obvious detritus or decay. Losing it. Little decay. 
get in there, you know, like the debates, yeah. you know, when they, the, the theology stuff comes in. And so. I mean, there's, there's really important and interesting things going on, but a lot of my friends are coming out of studying either theology or philosophy or language. You feel somehow like you're missing something, so you don't know. Because they're always saying, oh yeah, this is just, this is just a theological problematic, you know. I don't know, like, um, Scotus is univocal or whatever, you know, 
vocal one that you subtract it from the choir. Even if you don't know it, like, somehow out of the loop or... Yeah, preparing this dissertation, it's kind of like... I'm pretty... I'm, I'm, using, I'm like referring to a little bit of theological scholarship, but for the most part, I'm trying to just research it just to straight up for the sake of brevity. Every time I talk to somebody... Bad guys, like theological background, like, oh, you know, there's a whole massive, like, amount of all this and writing. This is probably relevant. All this is relevant. I'm like, I really gotta restrict what I'm reading here to a certain extent. One more thing I'm certain about is just keep it on the temple. Like, don't involve, like, the, uh, the, the, the crucifixion, like, get rid of all that stuff. You don't have to deal with, like, all these things that are happening and Yeah, I think that would be better. And I think we're going to do, uh, sorry. Are those our waters over 